All right. Good morning. Hi, Sue. It's nice to see you. We got like seats right here. Way in the back. Good to see you if you're online. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads, and it is wonderful. I want to, would you just do me a favor? If you're in the room, if you're online, uh, just give a big thank you, round of applause for our volunteers that are coming in and making this happen in the middle of a pandemic. So... Uh, you might not have known it, but you were greeted with a smile if you came in the building. And for our online hosts, thank you so much for volunteering, being a part of it. Do me a favor, take out your phone. Everybody take out your phone. We did this last week. We're going to do it again. Take out your phone, if you would, please. Some of you are super holy and don't bring your phone to church. I appreciate that. And you're not going to spend near as much time in purgatory as I am. But uh, pull, out, <laughs> pull out your phone. That was a joke for those of you, just a total purgatory joke. I mean... Most Catholics don't even hold that belief anymore. So just everybody take a breath, all right? Um, uh, pull out your phone. If you're, if you're at home, especially do this, okay? So uh, take your phone out. Take that picture uh, of where you are watching the service right now, connecting with us. Now, make sure you send me a photo that you don't mind being made public of where you're viewing because here's what we're doing. We're working on something pretty cool. So we're working on getting on these walls over here uh, images of people that are joining in right now watching. It's not gonna happen today. We're just working on the technology. <laughs> um, but what we're gonna do is, so, so we can remember that, we have people joining us from all over. We're going to have up on these walls video images of pictures of people watching online joining and hopefully eventually people that are willing to tune in via their camera and be joining us and we'll have them up on the wall so we can see them. But for now, what I want you to do, if you would please, uh, take a picture of yourself, your family, your family and friends, wherever you are watching the broadcast and then text that to me, my cell phone number. If you're on the online host, do me a favor and put this in the chat. It's 207-608 1106. That's my cell phone number, 207-608-1106. Text me your picture and your name, your picture and your name. And like I said, I'm going to respond to all those like I did last week. And I'm going to pray for you this week. If you send me your picture and your name, I'll pray for you this week. If you don't, you're on your own. Okay. Um, I just, I don't know you. So I can't, I, I mean, I'll pray for when I pray, Lord, be with the Crossroads family. You'll be included in that one, okay? But uh, it also helps me get to know people in the middle of a pandemic. Pandemic. <laughs> That's what we should call it. This is a pandemic. You know what I'm talking about? Am I allowed to say that? I don't know. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it. I generally say it anyway, but pandemic. That's good. That's funny. That's like my Colorado... Indiana, Kansas, Massachusetts, Maine accent, all coming into play right there. It's a pandemic. So listen, uh, text that to me. That would be awesome. Text me your photo. Want to see it with your name. I would really appreciate that. Um, well, and another thing I want to say is uh, we are launching peacemaking groups, all right? Now, I understand we're in the middle of a pandemic, all right? And, uh, and gathering with people is tricky and difficult. I understand that. But we are presenting opportunities for those of you that would like to connect for peacemaking, all right? And so it, on, on your digital connect card, uh, so if you have your phone out, which you should, because I asked you to, uh, you can go to crossroadscolorado.com slash gather, and there's a digital connect card or the connect card that you received when you came in the room. There's a little checkbox that says, send me the link for the fall groups catalog. And that is all of our groups that are focused on helping us become peacemakers, focused on do justice, love, mercy, walk humbly. We're going to talk more about those in the next coming weeks. But if you would just like to get that link so you could peruse through them and see, some of them are digital. Some of them are meeting in safe ways uh, in person, uh, and some of them are education. We've got a really exciting uh, uh, like 40-day lament for racial uh, justice that you can participate and go through the process of just bringing healing and understanding and grace uh, and understand in, in all that is happening in terms of race in our culture and in our lives. And you can participate in that without ever actually going to a group. We've actually produced about a 35 minute lament and service that you watch online at home. And then you're going to get weekly kind of uh, uh, prayer prompts and meditations. And so there's all kinds of stuff in this catalog and I'd love for you to get it. It's all digital. Okay. So we're not going to be touching it with our hands. So if you'd like to see what those are, uh, that's going to be sent out this week and you'll just be put in that group and you'll get it. All right. So that'd be wonderful. And I'll maybe talk more about that in a little bit. <sighs> My time can start officially now. <laughs> 
Um, hey, listen, we launched a series last week called Hope is Open. And we, we gave this anchor verse from Jesus who said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. And it's somewhere in the heart of all of us, and I don't mean, when I say us, I don't mean those of you that are here or tuning in, I mean the, all of humanity, right? We, we, somewhere in our hearts, we wanna be a child of God. We want to know that the universe is good. We want to know that the, that which holds all things together of which all life comes from, that flows out of is present and is good and that we are children of God. And what, what Jesus says is the evidence, like people will know it and they'll call you this by working for this thing called peace. And we talked about it being shalom. And so I will say this, this series every week builds on the other. It's like an eight week long sermon. Now, some of you thought last week's sermon was just one eight week long sermon. Uh, so I promise it'll be shorter this week. No, no, no joke, it will be, maybe. And, and so the, I wanna encourage you, if you missed last week or if you miss a week, go back and listen to it. Uh, listen to it through the podcast or watch it on YouTube at some point in time because they all kind of build off of each other. So we talked about what, what peace is. Uh, we talked about it being shalom and fullness and wholeness. And then we walked through the different topics. And we said last week that hope is hidden when peace is broken. I love the, the kind of mantra of our church is hope is here. When you walk into the atrium, you see the big signs, hope is here. Uh, I love that our first impressions and, and our, uh, our guest services people are wearing hope is here swag, right? That, that we want to be a space, a physical space where people encounter hope, wholeness, right? Uh, that there is a, a good future for you. Uh, but we said, you know what the reality is? Like hope is broken when peace is, is, is broken. Hope is hidden. You can't find it. Where is it? And so, but when we create wholeness, that exposes and opens up hope. And we want that in our lives as individuals. When we leave here, we want to say hope is here. Hope is where I am. But the only way that happens is if I bring wholeness to the world around me. And so this is the series we're in. And we said last week that this week, we're gonna ask this question, like, how, how, did, it, how did it happen? How, is, how did peace get broken in so many areas of our world? How did peace get broken? Think of it like this. How many of you have children? And a big hello to all the kids that are in the room and the kids that are uh, online, uh, making it so that their parents can't watch. I appreciate you uh, doing that. I, I always hear from parents like, we can't watch it live. Our kids are a mess, you know? Well, everybody's is, right? So uh, you have kids and you come home or you walk into a room and something is broken and it wasn't broken before. Like the last time you saw it, that lamp was in perfect working order. And then the next time you saw it, it was shattered in pieces on the ground. And you pull in the most likely candidates, which would be people shorter than you and younger than you that live in your home, right? And you say to them, you bring them in and you say, how did this happen? Right? Like it's a given, this is broken. The lamp is broken, the bed is broken, the cookies are gone, whatever it might be. And you ask this question, how did this happen? Well, that's the question I wanna bring to this conversation around peace. How did this happen? How is it that we have lost our internal and therefore our interpersonal peace? Now remember, peace is not just the absence of conflict, it's this idea of wholeness, right? But we've come into this space and you look at the evidence in our world, we've lost internal peace, peace with who we are, We've lost interpersonal peace, the connectivity with one another. If you scroll through your Facebook feed, you can see that we've lost our minds. Like we don't know how to be kind and polite. You know, can I, like, here's a funny story. So I was watching the vice presidential debate this past week and um, I had drank some coffee at about six o'clock. And so I was like wide awake at 1130 at night. Like, so I watched it. And then like, you know how your YouTube feed will all of a sudden like give you suggested things, like watch this now that you've watched this. So I like go into the dark hole of like YouTube, right? Just telling me you should watch this night. And then all of a sudden what popped up was the presidential debate from, it had to have been 2012. It was Mitt Romney and uh, Obama, right? And, and I watched the debate from eight years ago. And you know what was so, was so amazing to me? was how nice they were to one another. Like legitimately, I was like, that was only eight years ago. Like they were nice to one another. They actually talked about what they agreed with in each other's plans and policies. They talked about where their fundamental disagreements were. It was absolutely, I was like, this is like a time warp to a different, like they had peace with one another, even in the midst of presenting different ways forward. And at 2012, it was a lot around the economics of things and the economy. But it was fascinating to watch these two on opposing sides of the spectrum politically and with their policies, 
be cordial to one another, disagree, but be cordial. They had peace, but that's, the reality is that's been broken in, in such a strange new way over this, this last era, this last decade or so. But we can look at certain statistics. If you look at suicide rates, suicide rates are one of the highest rates of death amongst all ages. That's an interpersonal loss of peace in our world. We live in a world that is struck with homophobia. We live in a world of incredible wealth disparity where 60% of the world's wealth sits with like less than 1% of the world. This disparity in wealth, there's interpersonal brokenness there. We see human rights violations everywhere. Racial inequality. We see tension and turmoil, violence. All these things in our world are evidence that, that there is a breakdown in our wholeness. There's a breakdown in us, the way we see and understand who we are as people. And there's also this breakdown uh, of what it means to actually be. Here's the big thing. Like we have lost existential peace. Existential peace, right? This idea of what is it all about? Can I connect my life to a bigger story? Like the truth is most of us, we can connect our lives to one story above us. And that's the we dynamic. Sometimes I'll talk uh, about something I've learned called the cosmic egg, right? And there's this idea that we live in these different layers. There's the me layer. There's my world, my private life. There's the we layer, which are the groups that I'm a part of. I'm a Christian. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm a part of this family or I'm a part of this political movement, whatever. But then there's this bigger story, this cosmic story that we're all a part of. We've lost our ability to connect with that cosmic story, which answers the question, why do I exist? Like, what's the meaning of it all? Like, we, can't, we can no longer connect our lives outside of our, our group. Like, we live at the we level. Like, I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I'm an independent. Like, that's the level we live at, but we can't get beyond that. I'm an American. We can no longer connect our story into a bigger story, and it's left us going, what are we doing here? What's it all about? This question of existence. Who is God? What is the meaning of it all? Is the universe good? Is it bad? Is it all coming to us? So we've lost that peace, that wholeness that comes with being able to connect our lives to something that outlives us, bigger than us. And so that brings us to the question, well, how did we get here? What, what has brought us as human beings to this place? How is peace broken and how has peace been broken? That's the question I wanna try and tackle a little bit today. And to do that, I actually want to look inside of scripture. I know it's strikingly strange that we would talk about scripture at church, right? I actually think the Bible is an incredible book of wisdom. I believe it's inspired. I believe it offers us the struggle to try and make sense of the world. Gives us a glimpse of how people understood God and how God allowed people to understand God. And it's just amazing, but there's so much wisdom there. But I want to look at this uh, and see where can we maybe learn and get an understanding of how peace is broken. I want to look at a little letter in the New Testament called James. Now, if you're watching online or if you're sitting here in the room and you are brand new to Bible study, this can be a really freaky experience. Like we're going to open up this big book that's huge that I've been told I have to follow. And there, it seems like there's a lot of rules in that thing. And I don't, I'm out. You just immediately went and got a soda or, you know, I don't know, something. (laughs) But here's the thing. Let me just break it down for you really quickly. Uh, We are a space that believes that God has called us to follow Jesus. And scripture is one wonderful way to help us do that. But there are a lot of rules in the Bible and, and we don't follow them. Like some of you in this room right now, believe it or not, you're wearing cotton blend. Some of you are gonna get a lobster roll after church. That should tell you right now, you don't follow the Bible. There's no eating of lobster in the Bible. I mean, that's specifically forbidden, right? So let's just understand the complexity of this thing we call the Bible. It doesn't mean it's any less beautiful or inspired or beneficial for our lives, but let's everybody take a nice deep breath, okay? And we wanna look for wisdom and patterns in the Bible. And so I wanna look at a letter The Bible is a collection of writings, different types of writings written over 2000 year period probably. And I wanna look at a letter that we still have from a guy named James. Uh, Some people tradition says James is the brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James actually might be one of the earliest pieces of literature that we have in what's called the New Testament or the Christian scripture, which is probably a more polite way to call it. Uh, The Christian scriptures, the, the second part of what the whole Bible is. And this letter is really dealing with what does it mean to act like someone whose life has been changed by Jesus in very real tangible ways? 
It's really a wonderful book. I would encourage all of us to read the letter of James between now and the election. It's a good reminder of what it means to be a human. See, I actually think Jesus and scriptures are trying to teach us how to be human. <laughs> like Jesus is the perfect human. He's like, this is what it means to be a human. Do this, <laughs> right? And so James has this wonderful letter and I wanna look at a few verses. And in James chapter three, this is what it says. It says, who among you is wise and understanding? Who wouldn't love that to be described about them, right? If you're sitting at home in your pajamas, drinking your mimosa, watching, you're like, yes, I wanna be wise and understanding. If you're sitting in here, say, I wanna be wise and understanding. Who among you is? So James is saying, you think of yourself as wise and understanding. Who, who, who is that? And he says, let him, pardon the pronoun, let them, let him, let her, let whoever it is, show their works by a good life in the humility that comes from wisdom. Now, isn't that interesting that James immediately starts to talk about this idea of wisdom, which is a huge theme in the whole Bible, but, but wisdom teaches humility. Now, I don't know about you, but I've met some really wise people and humility isn't necessarily the first word that comes to my mind when I think about it. <laughs> so it's interesting that James says, live a good life in the humility that comes from wisdom. Like true wisdom brings humility. Now, now he's gonna go crazy. And I should say this, can I, just, can I just sit down for this, okay? I should have said this from the beginning. We all have to, this is a good point to talk about. We have to come to this talk with a sense of humility because James is getting ready to light up the room. Like he's getting ready to point the finger. <laughs> and if we don't come in a space of humility, we will immediately deflect. We will do what is the pattern of the Bible and we will scapegoat. We will not want to own our own stuff. And so real wisdom, we learn right away, brings us to a place of humility that says, I don't know everything and I have to hear and I have to listen. And so I just wanna say right now, like our prayer, all of our volunteers that were here, we got together and we prayed this morning. Our prayer was that we, whether we're watching online or whether we're in the room, that we would come to this with a sense of humility and that we would allow God's spirit to speak to us and that we wouldn't hear James through the lens of our modern day dualistic understanding, but we would come with a knowledge that we are loved by God it doesn't matter the things that we've done, right or wrong. We are loved by God and God's always calling us into better. God's always calling us into a better version of ourselves and our community. Okay, so there's a little public service announcement before we get too far into this and you hate me. Okay, so here's what we go. So James says, listen, let you show that you're wise and understanding by a good life in humility. That's what wisdom really produces. But if you have bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. Don't say that you're wise. Don't say that you're living this life that's good when inside your heart, you're only doing it for yourself. When you're jealous of another person and what they have, you're jealous of their prestige, you're jealous of them, you're jealous of their power, you're jealous of, don't, don't boast about being wise, but when that's really in your heart. Because James says, wisdom of this kind doesn't come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now. These are, these are metaphors, right? So come down from above, like above and below. Like these are words that antiquity would use to describe good and evil. Like God was above in the heavens, but God's always trying to break through even in scripture, trying to get us to understand that God is not like above, away in heaven. From a distance. It's a beautiful song, but it's just not true, right? Like God is in all of us. Like we've all been created in the divine image. In him, we live and move and have our being. The universe is engulfed in God. Like that's the beauty of this big mystery, right? So just let's not get caught up in, above, but, but this, is, this is giving us an understanding that there is a problem, right? That there is a good and there is an evil. And there is like in the language of demonic. It's like that kind of wisdom that takes hold of us, that is, that, that's jealous and, and selfish. Like the only reason why we try to gain was so that we can benefit ourselves. Like that's not from God. That's not from love, would be maybe a word some of us are more comfortable with. So that's from actual hate. That's from not love of neighbor. That's from love of myself, which is demonic, right? In an unhealthy way. And James goes on, he says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every foul practice. Could we be honest and say that it feels like 
We live right now in a time of disorder and every foul practice. But here's the thing. <laughs> disorder and every foul practice has always been a part of human history. It feels, it feels big right now because there's so much tension. Everything is going on. We have a, a pandemic. I'm gonna call it a pandemic from now on. I love that. <laughs> I'm gonna add an N in the word too, just to really go for it, right? We, we live, we're in a, in a highly contentious political battle right now in an election year. All these things are just soaring in on us at one time and it feels, but the reality is selfish ambition, jealousy produces disorder. And there is that kind of wisdom. There's that kind of wisdom that says, go after it, get it for yourself. This is what it is. It's about you and you want what they have. So you work hard to take what is theirs and make it yours and make sure they don't get it. It's disordered. And I love what James says, but he says, but there is a wisdom from above. There is a wisdom that is from God. There is a wisdom that is based in love. And it's first of all, pure. And then what? Peaceable. It's peaceable. It builds wholeness. It's gentle. It's compliant. It's full of mercy and good fruits without inconstancy or insincerity, meaning that it is always sure. It's consistent in its wisdom, in its way. And it's, it, it's a true statement that my life doesn't often reflect that. My life often gets caught up in the disorder of this world and the frustration, sometimes in, in, for good reasons, but it doesn't look like this. And I don't think it's too much for us to think that as human beings, we can actually live in this wisdom, regardless of what political side you're on, that we can actually live this out. See, what James is giving us, he's saying, listen, there are two wisdoms in this world. One produces justice and one produces injustice. Now, the Bible word for justice, the way we talk about justice right now, the Bible word for that is righteousness. So if you'd like to put the word righteousness and unrighteousness in there, do it. But don't think of righteousness as I am singing the right song to God. I was baptized the right way. They didn't sprinkle me. I was full on immersed. They held me under for a solid 30 seconds to make sure that worked. <laughs> or the other way around, like I was sprinkled, none of that foolish baptism by immersion making me wear what t-shirt in front of people. I'm not doing that, right? Like, like we get into like doctrinal debates and we think that's righteousness. Like I believe the right way, like I worship the right way where I sing the right way or I understand the Bible. Righteousness in the economy of God is always about the way in which we're treating one another. It's about how is my relationship with God influencing my relationship with my fellow human made in the image of God. And so there is a wisdom that produces righteousness. There's a wisdom that produces peace and wholeness, but there is this wisdom that produces unrighteousness, broken shalom, unjust systems and structures ungodly ways of seeing people and treating people. And then James goes on, he says, and the fruit of righteousness or the fruit of justice. So think, not, uh, think of this as like, if justice were the fruit, if righteousness were the fruit, it comes from peace. Isn't that good? Like the, 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 the fruit of righteousness, right? The righteous fruit, the fruit that is like the strawberry, right? How many strawberry people, you like strawberries? No? Okay, what fruit do you like? Say it out loud. Bananas. There you go, bananas. High in potassium, that's good. So the banana, right, comes from sowing in peace and cultivating peace, right? So you sow wholeness. You look where there is injustice and you work for justice. That's sowing it, pre preaching it, proclaiming it, letting it be the core of who you are, Right? You sow it out there and then you cultivate it. You work for it. See, righteousness, justice requires that we initiate and we maintain peace. It's not just enough to try and maintain. You have to initiate it, which means we have to look for the broken spaces, the dark corners of this world. And as followers of Jesus, bearers of the light, we go headlong into the difficult spaces. And we bring the truth that's found in the, in the word of God that is all people are made in the image of God. That, they, that all people intrinsically have this right to be treated fairly, to be treated graciously with mercy. And we see the world through that lens. So you initiate it, we proclaim it, we want it, 
but then we work at maintaining it. When it's found, we work at maintaining it. We don't, we don't continue in systems that create the economic injustices, that create the barriers. That we say, we gotta maintain peace. This is work. And so James goes on and he gets super practical now. He says, where do the wars and where do the conflicts among you come from? Where does it all start? Isn't it from your passions that make war within your members? In other words, inside your, like, your mind and your heart, your hands fighting against one another. Like you kind of know that I should be generous, but boy, do I want that boat. But I could get a bigger boat. But boy, do I want, I could spend it on selfish ambitions, but I, or I could help the poor. Now, is having a boat like a sin? No. Like have a boat, invite me on it. I love boats. I'd love, I'd love your boat, especially. <laughs> it's like, I love friends that have pools more than pools. You know what I'm talking about? If you've ever had a pool, you're like, amen, brother, amen. <laughs> I always run the risk when I bring up an example, some of the people like, if you have a boat and now you feel like I think you're a heathen because you have a boat. I don't, there's nothing like that. Like just because you have a boat doesn't mean you're not generous, right? But the idea is we do get caught up in our selfish things and, and there's this war inside of us. And if we don't bring that to the cross, if we don't bring that to the way of Jesus, what happens is what James is saying. You covet and you don't possess. You want it really bad, but you don't have it. You kill and you envy, but you can't obtain it. You fight and you wage war and you don't possess it because you don't ask. And you ask, but you don't receive because you ask wrongly. And every parent understands that, right? Every pair understands that one right there. You ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. This is an example I always use with my own kids. Like there are things that my kids could ask me for and I will buy that for them in a heartbeat. They say, I want a book. I'm buying that book right away. I don't even care what it is, you're reading. I mean, I shouldn't say that. There are some books I would be like, is that really the best idea? But like that, that's the truth. Like my kids would ask for certain things. I say, no, I'm not gonna buy you that because I don't see that in their best interest, right? And so there's a trust in the same way, but like if we get so caught up in coming to the universe, coming to love, coming to God, whatever word you like to use, and it's always about us and our selfish ambition, we're never gonna live into that. It's why when people love to quote Jesus saying, you know, anything you ask in my name will be given to you. Like we love to pull that one scripture verse out and say, you know, so if I just ask for it, God's gotta do it. It's like, absolutely not. You had to look at the whole pattern here when we actually align ourselves with the cross and sacrifice and bearing the, the sin of the world in our own bodies, in our own selves, that's a whole different way of praying. But when we're just for ourselves, there's a problem. And so what happens here is we see that disordered passions in our lives, like what I want for me, my selfish ambition, it produces all kinds of what I like to call me-centric energy. Your kids have me-centric energy, right? It's like the first maybe 26 years of their life now. <laughs> it's, and and, and it's, it's, it's just me-centric energy. It's what I need, what I want, what I want to fill my life with. And it's all around us. Have you noticed that in this world? Like it's just filled with me-centric energy. And Jesus was this like focus of other-centric energy. Everything was about everybody else. Everything. And so we live in this space where our disordered passions, is it wrong to want a boat? Everybody say it with me. No, it's not wrong to want a boat. But that passion for a boat can become disordered when it produces pain in someone else's life. Is it wrong to have a savings account? No. But when we're given an opportunity to meet the need of someone and we choose to let that person stay in need and pain so that we might cover a potential pain in our future, I think that becomes a disordered passion. I really do. And I know that some of you are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just said that. I just don't know how else to, to like represent Jesus accurately. That seems to be Jesus's way. That we, we balance the tension in all of these things. That it's not wrong to have savings account. It's not wrong to be thinking about the rainy day. It's just wrong to neglect somebody else's rainy day as a Christian. It's just, it's wrong to do that for the sake of a potential rainy day on our part. And so when our passions get disordered, we live in a me-centric universe. And this is the type of wisdom that the world gives us. And I love what James says here. He just invites us in with this really warm name, adulterers. <laughs> like he didn't ease us into that one, did he? <laughs> right? I mean, he just went for it right there. He's not worried about the offering later. You know what I'm saying? Like, He's not worried about paying the mortgage on the building. He's like, adulterers, that's what you are. 
It's one of the great metaphors and images all throughout scripture is a bride and a bridegroom. Israel was the bride of Yahweh. The church is the bride of Christ, like this imagery. And whenever our passions move away from the bridegroom, we are spiritually adulterers. That's a tough one to hold on to. So James says, he says, adulterers, do you not know that to be a lover of the world means enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a lover of this world makes themselves an enemy of God. Now, I grew up in an environment that wanted to take that verse and turn it into, if you love listening to Led Zeppelin, you are an enemy of God. That's what it wanted to reduce this to, silly moralisms. Like, and so much of Christianity is, tr- and, and morality is important, but morality is a second order. Morality flows out of God's love for me, not for God's love for me. Like to turn all of this into what music you should listen to, what movie you should watch, and to love the world is to love Tom Clancy novels. And if you love Tom Clancy novels more than you love going to church, then you are an enemy of God. And that is not at all what James is saying here. If you read the whole thing, James is saying to love the world is to love the wisdom of this world, which seeks to serve you to ignore others around you, to not be merciful, to not be just, to not be peaceable. Like that's what it means to be, to be a lover of the world is to say this world's values and the way it says it should function, that's a problem. You can't possibly be in alignment with the God of the universe that created the entire world, every person on this planet and put your nationality, put your race, put your uh, country of origin, put that above God's order for all of humanity to flourish. You can't do it. To be a lover of this world, to place it over is the problem. Because what James is saying here is the values of this world will always oppose the values of the kingdom of God. It will. And what are the values of this world? Empire, might makes right. Whoever's the most powerful wins, it must be God. That's the issue. These are the things that this world holds up as value. They say the homeless are just lazy. They're just lazy. Criminals are criminals by choice. They choose that. They just choose to do what's wrong. Drug users, that's their choice. That's their problem. That's the values of the world. The values of this world, hold on. Like you just gotta work hard. You just gotta work hard. The values of this world, and this will be a tricky one. The values of this world says equal opportunity is the same thing as equality. That's a value of this world. Nationalism, that's a value of this world. It's just, it's just there, but what are the values of the kingdom? What do we see Jesus talking about? What do we see revealed in scripture? It's, it's universal. It's, it's, it's for everyone, that God's love is for everyone. It's a universe, it's, it's a global community. It's a community, it's not the mightiest or the strongest. You know, actually in the economy of God, you know who's the most important? The weakest the weakest. In a healthy church, do you wanna know who the most important people are in a healthy church? Are those that are hurting the most at that moment in time. That's the economy of the kingdom of God. So we're only as strong as the weakest member. And we have to come around and we have to work. The kingdom of God says, you know what? The intrinsic identity inside of a human being, the image of God that is there in every person can't find its way out not because they're terrible people, not because they choose to be criminals, but because crime and poverty, these things that are anti-Christ are actually the things that produce and they come out of unjust structures. They come out of unjust systems. They come out of the pain that we produce through selfish ambition. Like that's, that, that's the very heart of it. Now, that, does that mean that it's right? Does that mean, no, but it's just, there's a bigger view of understanding that when we look at things like poverty, we say poverty is first and foremost a problem of a breaking of shalom, not a matter of laziness. And we live, and, and I'm gonna just say, oh, I'm, you know, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to not have you like me. But we live in a, we are living, we would, we would be living with a set of blinders to not say that our zip code has just as much to do with our wealth and our income and our access than our own will. You, you can't travel the world and go to some of the poorest countries and say, how does that not, how does that not affect, how does that not affect your ability to, to succeed in life? When you have to walk, you know, 
half a day to get clean water and half a day. Like, there's a great TED talk. I think it was a TED talk on the power of a washing machine and what they did when they brought washing machines into third world environments. And, and in these environments, women were primarily responsible for washing of clothes. And what could happen in a person's life when they had a washing machine? Education, community. Like, because now I don't have to walk and spend three hours walking to clean water, to clean clothes, to walk back for three months for a washing machine. But see, wisdom brings us to a place of humility to say, there were no bootstraps for me to just pull up and do it on my own. Yeah, I always have choices and I always have responsibility, but there's so much bigger to it. But that's what James is saying, that wisdom teaches us humility. But here's the thing, boy, when the system works for you, it's really easy to get blinded by it. And boy, have I grown up in a system that works for me. First of all, I'm a man. Now, how many men in the room? Raise your hand up nice and high. Raise your hand up. Don't be ashamed of it. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Listen, I want to say this so clearly because I'm really, I'm growing weary of this crazy, weird argument. I'm tired of being made feel guilty because I'm a white man. Nobody's making you feel guilty because you're a white man. I'm a white man. I don't feel any guilt about being a white man. I I had nothing to do with it. I didn't sign up and say, God, would you make me a white man, please? So that I could oppress everybody throughout human history. That would be really awesome. Nor do, I bear the, nor do I think I bear the responsibility or you as a white man for every sin that every white man ever committed. That's foolishness to think about. But here's the thing. That right there is an excuse to not engage with the future and the responsibility that we have as white men. <laughs> it's just an excuse. So hear me right now, very quickly. You, have, you should not feel guilty about being you. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing to that. You can't bear that weight, right? And I'm gonna talk about that in a second. But you should acknowledge, like I should acknowledge, that I have lived in a world, in an economy, in a system in America where I'm at the top as a white male. That's a fact, that's a truth. It does not make me a bad person. It does not make me evil. It just makes me responsible (laughs) to take that privilege that I have and use it for the hurting around me. The theological word for this, what Jesus did is called kenosis. It's an emptying of yourself for others. Philippians chapter two is the, probably one of the most important passages of scripture right now for every white man in America. Jesus, who, although he was in the very same image created, although he was in God, emptied himself of all privilege and took on a human form and died the death of a criminal for the sake of humanity. This is what it means. And that's an important passage of scripture for those of us who are white men, especially if you're a white male heterosexual man. And now I recognize the system has worked for me and so it's easy to get comfortable and blinded in it. But here's the problem. That system that has worked for me, the very nature of it has meant pain for others. And so my responsibility is not to go back and make, I can't do everything. That's just a, that's a wasted argument. My responsibility is to look forward and say, this, this opportunity that I have to take the, the, the power that's been given to me and use it for those around me, for their benefit, for their good. That, I can't think of anything more Christ-like. I can't think of any more Christ-like. So can I, just, I just want us to, as a community of faith, to understand that when we talk about these concepts, we just we have to let go of the of the way in which the world would would hold the duality there so i want to live outside the system paul is a great example of a person who is blinded by the system in acts chapter 9 he's out persecuting everybody and 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 god appears and says saul why are you persecuting me jesus says this and he's like what are you talking about what are you talking about he he, he was a product of the, it worked for him but he had to have a conversion experience to reckon. Now, did he all of a sudden become a, a person who hated the fact that he was a Jewish Pharisee? No. He said, well, I just count it all as nothing compared to the infant knowledge of knowing Christ and sharing in his suffering. That's the beauty of it. 
James goes on, he says, or do you suppose that the scripture speaks without meaning when it says the spirit that is made to dwell in us tends toward jealousy? In other words, God is jealous for God, (laughs) that God loves God. You wanna know why God loves you? Because God is in you. God loves God. Spirit calls the spirit. So the spirit is jealous for the spirit. God wants to be uh, in relationship with you because there's a part of God in you. And so the point of all of this, and I've really got to wrap it up because I've gone way too long yet again, all right? You're not supposed to shake your head at that, by the way. Some of you, that's the first thing you said amen to the whole time internally. That hurt a little bit. I just want you to know it hurt. I take that personally. Selfishness and arrogance. You want to know how we got here? James says it's selfishness and arrogance because that's what breaks peace and hides hope. It's selfishness and arrogance. It's pride. It's arrogance. Selfishness. It's me-centric thinking. It's the wisdom of this world that says, I deserve it. I should have it. I've done nothing wrong. I didn't own a slave. Why should I worry about it? Why should I bear the brunt of that? Selfishness and arrogance that I've got it all figured out. I've never read a book on the topic, but I've got it all figured out because I personally am not morally culpable. I never did anything. We all think it. Come on, we all, we all are there. But that's what James is getting at. Like you gotta go to a different wisdom. So in your everyday normal life, James gives us some really great stuff. James says, listen, He gives a greater grace, a grace that is greater than the brokenness of this world, a grace that is great. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let wisdom humble you and submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Now, I always thought resist the devil meant when you wanna like listen to that music, just turn the radio off. But resisting the devil is actually resisting the schemes of the devil, resisting the unrighteousness of this world, resisting those things that push against the kingdom of God. That's what it is. And he says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Cleanse yourself, cleanse your hands, you sinners and purify your hearts, you two of of two minds. That's the two wisdoms, right? Purify yourselves, live for the one wisdom that is contrary to this world. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So peace in our world, the kingdom, it begins with humble repentance. Now, let me talk about this word repentance for just a second. It is impossible for you and I as individuals to bear the weight of sin and glory. Like no one person, barring Jesus, could bear the weight of the sin of the world. We can't do it. So I cannot take responsibility for everything that every white heterosexual male has done since the beginning of time, evil. I can't do it. I, don't, I can't bear that, it's impossible but the body of Christ can. Like we can bear the sin of the world. That's what we're called into doing. I can't possibly represent the glory of God individually. I can't do it. I can't bear the weight of glory of always being perfect. I can't do it. But the church can come together and we can somehow bear the weight of the glory. Why? Because scripture teaches that we are the body of Christ. And Christ bore the sin of the world and he bears the glory of the father. So we can come together and participate. And repentance is that part of saying, okay, we're gonna own it. We're gonna own the brokenness in our world. We're not gonna get caught up in whether I did or didn't do this, but I'm gonna own that we live in a world that is, has broken shalom. And I'm gonna now work towards peace. I'm gonna give my life to that. And at the end of the day, I'm gonna hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because I didn't listen to Led Zeppelin, but because I wouldn't let the hungry go hungry. And I wouldn't let the naked go naked. And I wouldn't let those who have been trampled on because of the color of their skin continue to be trampled on just because I didn't understand it. That's what it means to lament, to turn around, to change, to give our lives over to the wisdom that is found in God. And here's the deal. It's not popular and it won't grow a church. It won't fill seats. But it will change lives. And so we begin with lament. James says to mourn. So we mourn the loss of righteousness in our world. I mourn that. I mourn that there is injustice. I weep for the wounds that the wisdom of this world has created. I weep over the fact that I have benefited without even knowing it. And others have experienced pain to my benefit. And then I resist, he says, resist it. I resist the system that will produce laughter and joy in some by inflicting pain and loss in others. I resist that system. I won't hold to it. 
I won't live my life looking for the best priced shirt, even though it was, it was put together and sewn in a sweatshop in a third world country by a child so that I can come home and say, look at the deal I got. I will not live my life that way. I will choose to have two shirts instead of 20. These are very practical ways that we resist the devil. Very practical ways that we take the time as best as we can to live our lives in a way that doesn't build me up at the expense of another. I told you you didn't want to come to this series. I mean, I warned you last week. Any system that creates winners and losers is not the kingdom of God. And I'm not talking about winners and losers on the playing field. I'm talking about winners and losers in life. Any system that creates winners and losers is not the kingdom of God. And this will bring healing to our world because it will cause us to discover the mind of the Prince of Peace. This one that Isaiah prophesied about said that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And next week, we're gonna talk about why in the world was Jesus called the Prince of Peace? Let me pray for you. Lord, may we not confuse condemnation with conviction. May we welcome conviction into our lives that causes us to be a better version of you in us. May we not succumb to the weight of guilt and shame, but may we rise to the glory of peacemaking. May we not hold ourselves to unreasonable understandings but may we live in your grace. And may we say like Paul in 1 Corinthians that I am everything I am today because of grace. And may we find a wisdom that humbles us to own the broken peace and shalom in the world, to own the reality of my own life and its participation in it, but to know that that is not the story. The story is that you have saved me from living in that and you've called me into creating something beautiful that is for everyone. So God, may our church be a community of peacemakers. May we be humble enough to learn, to set aside the things that we have held so dear that we would enter into the pain and the hurt and the brokenness of our neighbors, to understand it. The things that we can't understand, the things that we can't fathom, the things that we've categorized, Lord, help us to lay that aside and empty ourselves of all power and all privilege and do exactly what you did, Jesus. Walk into the dark spaces and just bring love and hope and life and forgiveness and grace and trust that you can hold that all together. In Jesus' name, amen. Check out this song.
Change.